Welcome to Bitcoin Fixes This, where we explore the impact that Bitcoin will have in all aspects of society. Today's guest is Sean Baker, author, carnivore, and medical doctor. We talk about the carnivore diet, the conventional wisdom about vegetables, and the moneyed interests that affect our nutrition. Sean also tells us about research into other animals, how humans differ, and the parallels between the banking and nutrition industrial complexes. Sean is a unique person. Not only is he an accomplished orthopedic surgeon, but he's also a world-class athlete who's broken various world records. He's a wealth of knowledge about nutrition and diet, which is sadly missing from a lot of medical training. What was interesting about this interview was how similar the conventional wisdom in money and in diet are. Hopefully, you can learn something you didn't know about nutrition in this interview. Sean Baker, how's everything going? Jimmy, man, it's a pleasure. I'm excited. This is the first Bitcoin podcast I've been on. I've done a lot of podcasts, you know, talking about nutrition and fitness and so on and so forth. So I'm really excited. I've got five steaks in my belly, so I'm good. I can talk for hours, man. Wow. And I thought I ate a lot of steaks. Five steaks? How many ounces was that? I think it was about four pounds, something like that. I had two of them were bison steaks and three of them were from cows and... I just got I've got a fridge full of steaks or freezer full of steaks. So I just kind of throw in some random steaks. Lately, I've just been doing one meal a day, so I'm eating this you know just giant breakfast, and then that kind of fuels me for the day. And so it's kind of it makes things a little easier for me from a just a logistical standpoint, less cleaning, you know, less cooking, and just as much nutrition. So that's oh, that's wow. been my routine here for, for the last few months, playing with that right now. Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah. One of these days, we'll have to go to the big Texan in Amarillo and uh, do the 72 ounce thing. I've done that a couple times and that is really hard. Did you finish uh, it? Yeah. yeah, I did. I just finished the meat and I don't eat any of the vegetables or whatever. Like I actually have a couple of videos on YouTube. Do you like What's credit if you don't eat the vegetables? Because it's supposed to be a challenge. No, they don't. But I mean, I at least have a couple of YouTube videos to show people out of it. And, you know, it's like, hey, I ate the steak and that's the only important thing. Also, I don't know if you know this, but if you order it at the table, it costs 200. But if you do it on stage, it's 72. So it's worth doing the challenge just to get the discount. Oh, that's pretty cool. You know, I interviewed, there's a gal named Molly Schuyler, who's a competitive eater. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she's not a big person. She's probably about 130 pounds. She ate that steak in under three minutes. Oh my God. <laughs> three of them in one steak in, you know, 20 minutes. So that's, you know, that's like, you know, what is three times 70, 220, 216 ounces of steak in, you know. In fact, she had. How a, long to. She, I'm sorry, go ahead. She has a world where she has a world. She's like, she's, she went to this place in, in Madison, Wisconsin. I think it was Madison, Wisconsin. They had this prime rib challenge. And the, and the standing current record was 10 pounds in one setting. And she drove up there, you know, for this challenge. And she tells me, she asked the, the owner, I said, hey, if I eat more, if I eat 10 pounds, can I keep going? And they said, yeah, sure, you can keep going. So she went there and did it. She just, she flew through 10 pounds. She got to 15 pounds, kept going, got to 20 pounds, kept going, got to 22 and a half pounds, and they ran out of meat. They said, we don't have meat. <laughs> we literally ate all the prime rib in the restaurant. And so this is a small human being that can eat. And this is, you know, if you look at it, a wolf can consume up to about 22 pounds in one sitting. So it's kind of like she's like a wolf. Those wow. Those are what the humans can do. And, you know, like I said, it was just incredible. I've eaten eight pounds in one sitting. That's my, my best. But I'm a 250-pound man. And I was like, 
I'm really <laughs> definitely humbled by that story. Well, how long does she not need to eat afterwards? <laughs> no, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it could be, you know, it could be a week. You know, there's accounts of like, you know, if we go back in history to like Mongolians, you know, in Mongolia, I mean, they've been reported to eat 10 pounds in one sitting or eat an entire sheep over the course of a day or two, and then they don't eat for a week. And so there's been these, all these weird different dietary codes. It's almost like you turn into a crocodile. You know, these crocodiles only eat once a year. I mean, they swallow a whole zebra or something like that. They may eat once a year. So it's pretty interesting how, how well that, and you know, it's interesting, your gastrointestinal tract will actually slow down the passage of food to accommodate all that food. So you actually get all that nutrition out of you. So it's one of those where your body's not wasteful with that stuff. Mm. Which brings us back to sort of like the thing that we want to talk about, which is, you know, carnivory and, and sort of like how it affects us as human beings and, you know, making sort of analogies to money and so on. But yeah, I mean, there is this, you know, a lot of propaganda around, you know, meat is bad for you and things like that. And yet, you know, when you look back at our ancient history and, you know, like at least what we can tell from, you know, whatever our archaeology we're able to do and so on. Meat has been a big staple of the human diet for a long time. Can you speak a little more to like how our bodies have adapted to that? You already kind of started, but I'd like to put that as a formal question. Yeah. So, I mean, if, you know, and again, there's some people that think this is not realistic, but I mean, if we look at an evolutionary model, and I tend to think there was pretty good evidence that, that there was some evolution you know, humans, you know, came from a common primate ancestor somewhere, you know, maybe 8 million years ago is what many people think. And we compare ourselves to the other primates that are still remaining on the planet, you know, which most people use things like chimpanzees, orangutans, you know, gorillas. When we look at the the, the differences in anatomy and, and what the diet does. And so if we look at a gorilla, for instance, a gorilla, you know, is going to weigh anywhere between 250, 300 pounds, you know, like a silverback gorilla. That's a male, and that's about my size. I mean, I'm 250. I've been up as high as 300. Uh, that gorilla is going to eat between 40 and 60 pounds of vegetation or food every day, 40 to 60 pounds. Now, I can maintain the same body weight or nearly the same body weight with about four pounds of food a day. So there's such a difference in efficiency. And so what has happened is somewhere around 3 million years ago, there was a huge shift in climate. The climate got much, much colder than it was than it is today, you know. And before that, the, the world was a hot house. You know, it was very warm. There was lots of lush vegetation everywhere. Supported a very different type of ecosystem. And so, when the world got colder, we saw these tropical vegetation, this massive forest, shrink and turn into a lot of savanna, and it got much drier. When it gets colder, it gets drier. And so, when that occurred, you know, the primates and just like the other animals were forced to adapt to that change. And the, the adaptation that some of them made was, we can look at something like Paranthropus boisei or Australopithecus robustus, where they decided that a vegan, you know, plant-based strategy was what they were going to choose. And so they grew this big jaw, this powerful jaw where they could gnaw and rip through woody vegetation and, you know, like the gorilla and continue to get their nutrition that way. Well, they went extinct because what happened is it wasn't a viable option. Another subset of these hominids, you know, looking through the Australopithecus and then on to the early human species like Homo habilis and then Homo erectus and so on and so forth, opted on a more of a meat-based diet. And in fact, we started to see hunting and tool usage displayed, and even chimpanzees today hunt and they display some amount of cooperation, but their diet is still mostly 
vegetation, fruits, a little bit of insects, a small amount of meat. They get about 3% of their diet from comes from meat. So that strategy with what the chimpanzees and the gorillas has resulted in a brain of about 300 cc's. And they still have that same size today, even after 20 million years of this. That's not an evolutionary route to grow a big brain. To grow a big primate brain, you need very highly concentrated, efficient, energy-dense, bioavailable nutrition. And you get that from meat. In fact, 85 to 90% of all animals that have ever walked the earth or swam the earth, or fl flown across the earth, have used a carnivorous approach. You know, when we look at pure number of species, only a small percentage opt for, you know, an herbivorous approach. Now, there are a lot of herbivores. I mean, they, it's very good at being prolific. You can make a lot of herbivores because there's a lot of grass, but most species choose carnivory or some variant of that because it's more efficient. So now you've got this, you know, these early hominids, these humans, Homo erectus, who started to figure out, first they start out scavenging. Most likely they started to scavenge. And if we look at, you know, lions in Africa, they've done some modern studies on this. When a lion kills a zebra, it will leave 10 to 25 kilos of meat behind. That's a lot of food for, you know, some hominids, which likely sort of shadowed those animals, waited till they got done feeding, and then went in and, you know, scavenged like the other scavengers do. And to that end, you know, we started out scavenging. Scavenging meat means you're exposed to a lot of pathogens, a lot of bacteria. And so how do you combat that? Well, you develop an extremely robust and very acidic stomach environment, an acid environment stomach. And so when we compare human beings, you know, the modern human homo sapien stomach acid, pH is about 1 to 1.5. That's been repeatedly shown in many, many studies. That is on par with vultures and hyenas as some of the most acidic and stomach environments on the planet. And the reason for that was to kill pathogens. So we were sort of raised eating sort of meat that's been sitting out or spoiled meat. And so that's where we started. And then we started to figure that out. And then we started to figure out how to actually kill animals, you know, more effectively, you know, the, particularly the big animals. And so Homo erectus with just spear technology somewhere, you know, 1.5, 1.8 million years ago, figured out how to do that. And then we started to see more and more dramatic increase in brain size. So they went from, you know, an Australopithecus who had about a 400 cc brain through a, uh, you know, kind of an advanced Homo erectus where they got up to close to 1200 cc's. And then we went from there to, you know, at some point, you know, it's, it's not exactly a linear relationship. There's a lot of intermixing between these different hominid lines, but eventually we get to Homo sapien, which has a 1500 cc brain, or even Neanderthal, which even had a higher brain capacity of 1700 cc's. And they were, by all accounts, very, very carnivorous. In fact, radioisotope data out of the Max Planck University shows that, particularly in Europe, both Homo sapiens and Neanderthals were as carnivorous or more carnivorous than other predators like wolves and you know, things like that that existed. So they could tell that looking at the nitrogen and carbon signatures on their skeletal remains. So the way we grew this huge brain is so incidentally, as our brain grew and it became very energy dependent, it became an energy hog. Our brain currently uses 20% of our, our body's energy, you know, even though it's only 2% of our size. So it's very energy intense. And to run an organ that way, we had to lose gut size, you know, we had to make a trade-off. Where are we gonna where are we gonna dedicate our energy to? If we look at say a gorilla or a chimpanzee, 60% of their gut, and they have much, much bigger guts than we do. They have this huge hind gut. It's dedicated to fermenting, fermenting these plant materials. So they take all this twigs and leaves and stems that they eat and they turn that through microbacterial act 
activity in their gut into short chain fatty acids. So they actually absorb some fat that way, but it is an extremely inefficient process. In fact, you know, gorillas, they're eating 40 to 60 pounds of food a day. They spend 80% of their day actually physically chewing food. I mean, all day long, they do nothing but chew. That's their entire waking hours. And then, oh, by the way, they have to recycle their food by eating their own feces to get vitamin B12. You know, if we look at the skulls of ancient, you know, early humans, instead of 80% of their time, they were chewing maybe 4% of the time based on jaw structure analysis. And so you've got this, what could only allow you to eat, you know, 4% of the time, it has to be highly concentrated energy. And that is by and large animal tissue, particularly animal fat. And so accessing the bone marrow, the brain, the fat around the viscera, the fatty meat, particularly these big, huge mega herbivores like the elephant, like the mastodon, like the mammoth, the woolly rhinoceros, and so on and so forth. They had a lot of fat in their meat. And so having access to that, and we know that Homo erectus was very, very effective at killing these elephants. In fact, they could do it whenever they wanted. And there were so many of those animals around in relatively small numbers of these, you know, these early humans. So that we, it was basically living at this Brazilian all-you-can-eat you know, barbecue all day long, every day. And so you can grow a big brain that way. And that's what we did. Now, fast forward to about 100,000 years ago, these megafaunal animals start dying off as the human species and particularly Homo sapiens starts getting more and more on the scene. We see that we're now showing that we start seeing declines in these megafaunal animals. So wherever humans go within a few thousand years, and we see that across Australia, across the Pacific Islands, across, across North America, these megafaunal animals die off. And so what happens, and what did happen is the human brain actually shrunk. We actually got physically weaker as a species. Our bones got weaker, our teeth got worse, our brain shrunk by about 200 cc. So if we look at the modern human homo sapien, about a 1300 cc, 12 to 1300 cc brain size. And again, we contrast that to say uh, Cro-Magnon or some of these other early modern humans, 1500 cc's. Again, Neanderthal, 1700 cc's. So large human brain side is dependent upon access to animal meat and particularly animal fat. Mm. Well, so where did everything start going wrong? What happened that, you know, vegetables became and plants and fruits and things like that became such a big part of the human diet? Yeah. I bet, you know, when we ran out of our primary evolved food supply and, and it's not that, you know, Humans are opportunistic omnivores. I mean, we'll eat whatever we can have. I am clearly convinced if you would have put a box of Twinkies out 100,000 years ago, the humans would have eaten them. They would have, they would have said, hey, what's this? And they would have probably liked it. They would have said it's really good. The problem is, you know, like I said, when we started to see a loss, a decline in enough of these big animals to support particularly a growing human population, we then had to resort to First of all, eating smaller animals. And so as part of that also helped drive our evolution because when you hunt a big, slow-moving animal like a mega herbivore that doesn't really run away, they're not scared of humans inherently because you're so much smaller. They don't understand, you know, you've got technology now. You've got either range technology or, or spears and, and cooperative hunting. So they don't really view you as a major threat. And this is one of the reasons why we lost all these megafauna throughout Europe and Asia and North America, but there's still a small amount in Africa primarily. And because of that, the African, like the African elephants and some of these animals, they kind of co-evolved with the human species. So they kind of got a little bit of an idea that maybe these guys are kind of dangerous, but when humans 
sort of spread out when Homo erectus left Africa a million and a half years ago and started cruising through Southern Europe and into Asia. Those animals didn't have a chance. Same thing happened once when they crossed the Bering Strait and went into North America. Everything got wiped out. So as those animals died off, we had to start to develop range technology. The bow and arrow was invented 80,000 years ago or so, something like that, to start hunting these smaller animals. The problem with the smaller animals, they don't have as much fat on them. So it's hard to get that huge energy requirement. So we had to kill more of them. You know, we specifically, you know, especially we're accessing their brain marrow and their, their brain cavities and their marrow, eating the organs, the viscera to get the fat. And then we started including more and more and looking to plants to, to provide that energy need because we're a very energy intense species. And so, and then fast forward later, we developed agriculture somewhere, you know, 12, 10,000 years ago, depending on what part of the world you're in, and eventually got exported to the whole world. Agriculture, particularly refining grain, gave us huge access to energy. Now, unfortunately, it's not the best food for us. It doesn't particularly help us out when it comes to health overall, but it did provide us enough energy so that we could be stable populations. We could grow in size like the herbivores do. You know, there's lots and lots of, you know, wildebeest and these animals, they just, they just take over the planet. Same things humans have done that, but it's been on, you know, a food source that, that's not optimal for us. And so now we have this huge population number. So we've got this huge population advantage, but the individuals themselves have been compromised. And so now we have these people that are suffering from chronic malnutrition or disease or stunting. You know, we look at most of the world that's eating like just grains, you know, that, that they can grow naturally. They're dependent upon, you know, they're subject to crop failures. There's problems with nutrition. There's you know, inadequate fortification of those foods. There's lots of stunting. And we see these people that are small, suffering from, you know, all kinds of malnutrition issues. Mm. Indeed. So where did the current sort of standard American diet, you know, recommendations and all that, where did that come from? Because you know, obviously that's the major paradigm today. Well, what I would say is where it actually came from was probably through corporate interest. I mean, I think this is what drives our nutrition policy. I know there's some pretense that there's science behind that. We do a charade every five years that we sort of pretend we analyze it, the, <laughs> the data. But, you know, like I said, the USDA comes out with this. The USDA is largely funded by you know, agricultural industry, and that's part of their job. And so much of their budget comes from there. So, I mean, we produce, and the United States is very good and very adept at producing a lot of grains, which is corn, soybeans, sugar, you know, wheat. That is what our, you know, great nation can do with the resources we have. And so, therefore, we want to make sure we're able to sell those, make a profit with that. And our, you know, our food system is entirely based upon that. And so it's, you know, part of it is, you know, you can feed the world. You can produce a lot of calories that way. Unfortunately, those calories are not particularly, you know, ideal as far as nutrition goes. And so that's kind of what drives our standard American diet. And, you know, the fact that we've got an ability to, again, refine those grains and make them very energy calorifically dense. You know, you think about it. If we look at, you know, most of these like refining like flour and sugar, it's a powder. You can't make a powder in your mouth very easily. Like if you're eating a natural food, whether even if it's a plant-based food, you're not going to turn that food into a, a tiny little powder. You're going to, you know, you're going to make it into small, you know, semi-broken up food and then you swallow it. That's how we're designed to access our nutrition. And then our digestive tract, you know, that acidic environment, that stomach acid where it sits in there for about four hours and then it passes along the small intestine where it's exposed to different proteases and lipases and other enzymes and it's absorbed and there's things called incretin hormones which stimulate you know different metabolic shifts in glucose metabolism 
you know, happened in a sequential fashion. But when you bypass that, you get this dysregulated response to energy. That is to say, you're getting, you know, same thing with protein powder. You're sucking in a bunch of whey protein or eating a bunch of flour or sugar. That's not how humans are designed to, you know, deal with their nutrition. We're designed to slowly extract it, you know, in a very methodical, sequential fashion. And that's what happens when you're eating things like meat. And so, you know, we've got this. But the other thing is, you have to look at it. It's expensive to raise meat relatively. It takes quite a bit of resources. It takes time. Whereas you can, you know, you can convert these and it's limited in its shelvability for the most part. I mean, you can make things like pemmicans and stuff like that will stay longer, which is what the Native Americans do. But with the refined grains, you can put them on the shelf for three or four years. So there's no real hurry or rush or, you know, time limit, you know, time preference to put, put a Bitcoin term in there on when you need to eat that nutrition. And so you've got, you know, this shelf stable, very cheap, very profitable. Whenever I see made with plants or plant-based, I think cheap and profitable. <laughs> That's what that translation is to me. It has nothing to do with health or environmental sustainability. Cheap and profitable. And that's what we're seeing. It's just cheap, profitable food. And that is what really dictates our dietary preferences and our dietary strategy in the U.S. is based on profitability. Mm. Well, some very interesting points that you made there that our bodies just aren't really good at eating the super fine powders that, you know, refined flour, sugar, and even protein powders, like you were saying, are. What are some of the consequences of eating stuff like that? What does that do to your body? Well, go to the grocery store and look around. I mean, that's the consequence. <laughs> I mean, you know, we can see it. We have massive rates of diabetes, obesity, heart mm -hmm. disease you know, autoimmune disease, digestive issues, mental health disorders, just, just through the roof, you know. So, I mean, that's what you get. I mean, you, you get a sick, debilitated population of basically kind of pathetic people, quite honestly. And I mean, that's, you know, and, and then the answer to that, of course, is take a supplement, take a pill, be on a drug, you know, and, mm -hmm. and then to normalize it. You know, we have this normalization of illness, you know, whether it's obesity or diabetes or psoriasis or mental health. Oh, it's normal. Don't worry about that. Everybody has it. Here's your pill. You know, smile. It's okay. There's nothing wrong with you. It's okay. It's fine. Just take the pills. You know, and, and I, I, of course, don't agree with that strategy. Hmm. Well, the other thing that uh, from reading your book that was really interesting is you say that 99.9% .9 of pesticides and plants are actually from the plant itself and not from like external, you know, farmers that are, you know, spraying some sort of pesticide. Can you explain that a little bit and what the consequences are for humans eating plants, even ones that are organic and have had no pesticides sprayed on them? Yeah. So, you know, a pesticide, you know, the, the definition of a pesticide is it kills pests. And so what's a pest to a plant? Well, it's usually insects or fungi. That's generally what plants evolved with. You know, the, the mammals didn't come along until, you know, 70, 50 million years ago or something like that, or maybe 100 million years ago when the first mammals appeared. So prior to that, the hundreds of millions of years where plants were fighting things, they were fighting insects and basically fungi. And so they developed pesticides, you know, to kill these pests. And so these are natural compounds that the plants produce. So when it, when it starts getting eaten by a moth or a caterpillar, it secretes a toxic compound that will dissuade that, that organism from, or even kill that organism from eating it. And so this is what plants have done, you know, throughout their time on earth. And so though it's not in the plant's best interest for you to eat its leaves or to eat its stem or eat its roots because that kills the plants. Now, the fruit's a little bit different. You know, the fruit has kind of the symbiotic relationship where it will 
you know, if you swallow a seed and then you, you know, you digest, you know, excrete it, and then you'll, you'll disperse it for them. But generally these plants do not want you eating them. In fact, I'm looking out my window right now and I see, you know, there's literally, I mean, there's probably, you know, a thousand pounds worth of vegetation I could eat if I were a gorilla, but if I would eat them, I would get incredibly sick. I'd be throwing up and I might even die. So 99% of the plants on earth, you know, you just can't eat. I mean, they'll make you sick. Now, a small percentage we've cultivated, we have sort of detoxified, we figured out how to process to minimize the impact of these sort of noxious compounds. Now, Bruce Ames in 1990 did a study I'm referring to, and he was, and the, the reason he did that is people were really concerned about uh, pesticides being sprayed on their fruit and their vegetables, and, and rightly so, they were concerned about it. So he did a study. And he looked at it and he did basically calculations on how much of the actual pesticide humans are being exposed to, how much is being sprayed on, and how much is being secreted by the plants themselves. Plants don't care if you're human or a bug. It doesn't want you to eat it regardless. So from a volume standpoint, 99.9% of the pesticides that you're exposed to as a human being are going to be these plant pesticides that the plants produce naturally. Now, some people say, well, I've been eating plants. I've been eating bananas and apples and strawberries and kale for years. So, and that's likely true. So in small dosages, the same thing with the sprayed on or sprayed on pesticides. In small dosages, they probably don't have a major acute effect. And this is what we can measure acute effects. Um, chronic effects are much more difficult to do. So, you know, if you're worried about pesticides, you know, whether it's sprayed on or, or naturally secreted from the plant, you know, you shouldn't eat the plants in the first place. In fact, if you look at studies on whether it's carcinogenic or not, they looked, they tested something like 52 of those plant compounds. And there were literally thousands of them. Most of them have never been tested. The 52 they tested, something like 27 were shown to be carcinogenic in animals, in animal studies at high enough dosages. And again, that's a caveat there, high enough dosages. So we do know that these plant compounds, whether it's, you know, oxalate in a you know, a raspberry or, you know, a glycoalkaloid and a leafy green vegetable can have a negative effect on the body. Now, the problem is, you know, if we ingest it in small enough doses, we don't know, or if we ingest it every day over years, maybe it does have this cumulative effect. Maybe it is a reason for you to have irritable bowel syndrome or, or inflammatory bowel disease or an autoimmune disease or you know, even a mental health disorder, you know, given enough chronicity, we don't know that we don't test it. It's very difficult to do those tests. And so it's kind of a wild goose case. And so what we see, you know, within sort of this community that I've sort of been a part of now for the last half decade, you know, we have people that, you know, eat a healthy diet by, by all accounts. They'll eat, you know, a little bit of meat and some vegetables and some fruit and they, eat, you know, kind of whole grains and they're very sick for some reason. They have an autoimmune disease, they have gut disease. When they drop all of those other foods, with the exception of meat, they just get better. And so one hypothesis would be, hey, those other foods are a problem. And I think that's a reasonable hypothesis. And so it's something that, you know, we know, like there's plenty of literature that shows, you know, if you eat too many oxalates, you know, there's people eating these green smoothies by the liter. And there's people that have gone into renal failure because of that, because they have oxalate toxicity. So we know these compounds are in there. And for some people, it can be a net benefit. But for other people, it can be, you know, negative. And so you just have to be fair enough and say, hey, it doesn't matter what the food is. You know, we're being we're being told that the vegetables are, all, are this wonderful thing. The way I look at it is anything that displaces junk food from the diet. You know, if you're not eating, you know, uh, Doritos and Twinkies, you're probably doing better. So if something's going to displace that from the diet, whether it's meat or fruit and vegetables, 
that's a net positive. But you know, conversely, I think anything that displaces meat from the diet actually decreases the quality of your diet. And so while it could be that you're eating meat and fruits and vegetables is a pretty good diet, I think meat without the fruit and vegetables is probably, from a pure nutrition standpoint, maybe a better approach still for many people. Mm. Yeah. Related to what you just said is something else that I read in your book, which is that you know, humans have managed these, you know, fruits and vegetables. And one of the things that you point out is that, you know, the fruits and vegetables that we see in the grocery store look nothing like what our ancestors would have seen. So can you describe for us a little bit, like what exactly changed and what our ancestors might have eaten in times of, you know, when there wasn't as much meat available, like what they would have eaten versus what we in modern society, like are able to get at the grocery store? Well, yeah, I mean, there's this concept of hybridization and, you know, genetic modification of, of fruits and vegetables and, you know, to some degree in the animals, you know, we, we genetically sort of breed different animals for different uh, characteristics. You know, we want our pigs fatter, we want our cows fatter, we want our chickens fatter. You know, same things happen with fruits and vegetables. And, you know, you can say that, you know, if you look at, say, a modern ear of corn, it's very big, it displays a lot of starch, it's got a lot of calories in it. You know, the kernels are much bigger. They're, they're softer. Watermelon's the same thing. Water, sort of primitive watermelon was a very small, fibrous, seedy type of organism, which you would only have gotten very little actual usable calories from. You know, a carrot, you know, an ancient carrot would be this small, thin, very, very woody, fiber-rich thing. It would be very difficult to chew. So we, you know, this, you know, you get a strawberry today that is almost the size of your fist. I mean, they're ridiculously huge. You know, back then they would have been, you know, a tenth of that size. And so they would have expressed uh, less sugar in there. We, we've bred everything to be more sugar rich so they taste better to us. And so that's just not something we would have had access to. And, you know, if you think about, you know, foraging strategies, if I wanted to get, you know, 10,000 calories worth of um, food from berries, I mean, I might have to spend an entire day gathering those and I would be competing with every other animal and the birds and it would only be available for, you know, depending on what part of the world I was in, you know, maybe a few weeks before they go bad. You know, we, we all know that, you know, fruit doesn't last very long. It goes rotten pretty quick, particularly once it's been picked. So not only do you have to pick it very aggressively and then you have to eat it very quickly, otherwise you're not going to be able to enjoy it. Whereas, you know, if you could kill a big old animal, you know, let's say you've got access to it, you know, you're able to kill something like a mastodon. I mean, now you're sitting there with several million calories and you know you can preserve the meat very easily it doesn't rot you know you can the ancient preservation takes you can either hang it up in the sun and turn it into dried meat you can stick it in the ice like a freezer or you can even put it under water so all these ways were discovered to sort of make that meat last for many many months and so you know but, but like i said we would have had limited access to these other foods and then you know like i said it took many, many thousands of years to and tens of thousands of years to figure out how to eat some of these foods. You know, even today, things like cashews, you know, if we look, look to India where they harvest most of the world's cashews, the raw cashew is actually very, very toxic. There's a compound called arushan, which, I mean, just touching in your hands, it causes your skin to become blistered. And so you see these cashew workers where their hands have literally become disfigured from peeling these you know, these shells off the cashews. And so if you eat them, eat a raw cashew or several raw cashews, and I mean raw, not what you see in the grocery store when they say raw cashews, but an actual real raw cashew off the tree, you'll literally die. And the same thing we said for things like, I think it's navy beans, a handful of navy beans eaten raw, 
will kill you. I mean, it's so so we've we figured out probably by watching a lot of people die. Quite honestly, <laughs> you know, probably the guy who was that nobody liked in the in the tribe was a plant tester. You know, it's kind of like <laughs> well, it's your turn to try that food and see if it works or not. Oh, wow. Well, so that brings us to sort of like today and, uh, you know, your expertise sort of as a doctor. Like, what have you seen in medicine that you just think is absolutely ridiculous, given what you know about, you know, carnivory and like how doctors approach nutrition? Well, I mean, in general, most doctors don't approach nutrition. I mean, they don't know much about it. In fact, you know, I still do a little bit of consulting and half the people I consult with are physician, it seems like, because they don't know how to eat. You know, doctors are just not the place to go for nutrition advice. I mean, they just, they're no better than your grandma. I mean, quite honestly, in some cases, they're worse. Um, you know, I mean, and, you know, most physicians, the best they'll do is recite the U.S. dietary recommendations, which I think are, again, wildly you know, corrupt, you know, or, or corrupted by you know, industry influence. And so I think, you know, when it comes to corrupt, now, I mean, again, I am a, you know, a physician. I trained in the allopathic, you know, U.S.-based system. I was an orthopedic surgeon. If I break, if I'm in a car wreck and my femur is sticking out through my skin, don't give me a ribeye steak. Take me to the damn hospital. Take <laughs> a rod down my femur. I mean, we do some very good things and tremendous things. And there's great, great people in medicine that do these things. But when it comes to chronic disease and how we manage and treat chronic disease, we do an abysmal job. We are wasting our money. I mean, it is literally the disease management. And I would say the disease maintenance system, because all we're doing is maintaining people in a state of disease and then kind of you know, playing with their symptoms a little bit. And so we've got this just absolutely backward strategy at it. And, you know, there's all kinds of technology and innovation and money being poured into this sort of symptomatology management type of thing. And so I see all this, you know, billions of dollars in all these Silicon Valley investments in the latest gadget or the latest test or the latest novel gene-based drug therapy. Unfortunately, you're just wasting your time. You're not helping the other people. You know, we look at our the state of the U.S. population and really the state of the population of the world. It is doing nothing but getting worse, despite all the technology, despite all the you know advances in drug treatments and therapies and access to you know every diagnostic test you can imagine, whether it be imaging or laboratory data. It doesn't seem to help, and because it, and the reason for that is we just continue feeding people a progressively worse and worse diet and completely ignoring that. You know, I mean, we see this with this current pandemic situation. We're talking about vaccine, vaccine, vaccine. You know, what's the next vaccine that's going to protect us? But no one is talking about the fact that the reason so many people are getting sick is because we have such a dreadful population health. I mean, there's clear studies that show that people that are obese, people that have diabetes, they shed more virus. They shed the viral particles for even longer. The viral particles that they develop inside their body become more virulent. You get more strains. No one is even bothering to discuss that because they think it's too hard. Well, people can't lose weight. You know, we don't want to offend our sponsors. We don't want to offend the people that lobby for us. We don't, we certainly, certainly don't want people to not be dependent upon pharmaceuticals anymore. You know, the largest lobbier for financial, you know, the largest federal lobbyer, lobbyer is the pharmaceutical industry. They give last year, I think it was $300 million, which is more than any other industry by far. And that's just what's on the books, you know, underneath the table, they're kicking in far more than that. So it's uh, kind of a shame what the system has devolved into. 
Yeah. So this is maybe starting to cross over into the Bitcoin territory, but like, how does money affect medicine? You already talked about, you know, like this sort of symptom management, you know, money generating drug company thing. But how does that work on the ground? As a physician, like what's the typical path that it takes and how do the drug companies actually benefit and how do maybe even doctors benefit as a result of all that? Well, I mean, certainly, I mean, as a doctor, you are basically a subcontractor for a pharmaceutical company. You may not know it or not. I mean, that's exactly what you're doing. I mean, my education as a physician was the curriculum was largely funded and designed by, you know, a pharmaceutical industry. I mean, this is what I'm taught. These are the tools I'm given. You know, I mean, you know, there's other things layered on top of that. But the fundamentals are, you know, this is how we practice modern allopathic medicine. It's a very much a you know, identify the problem and then identify the solution, which is either going to be some sort of procedure or drug, most likely. Now, you give lip service to lifestyle, but that really has no real concrete sort of day-to-day sort of feasibility. It's not even practical. You know, as an orthopedic surgeon, I would see, you know, 50 patients in a day, you know, sometimes every five minutes for periods of time. You know, you can't possibly do anything, you know, other than check somebody's wound. Hey, looks good. Okay, get out of here, kid, type of stuff. But when it comes to lifestyle, I mean, it's like, you know, you know, you're spending half your time typing in the computer, uh, making sure you're checking boxes, you're rewarded on compliance with algorithms and guidelines. Those guidelines largely are directed by major, you know, medical organizations, American Heart Association, American Diabetes Association, all of those companies or those organizations are seeing tremendous funding from industry, whether it's, you know, drug industries or food companies. So it's just... You're just plugged into that system where, and, and as a physician, you don't really have the opportunity to think, the time to sort of question things, to, to do your own research. You're just in a machine. You're like a hamster on a wheel trying to spin it as fast as you can. And, you know, your compliance with those algorithms, you know, did you make sure this patient had their statin drug? In part, incentivizes your remuneration, your payment. So if, you, if you're if you a physician that doesn't have regular compliance as based on the algorithms, which are largely sort of indirectly made by the drug companies, you're just not going to get paid as much. So the financial incentives are not really there to discuss lifestyle, to discuss, you know, how can we do this outside of these, you know, medical procedures. You know, as a surgeon, it was very clear to me, the hospital made it very clear to me that if I'm not doing a lot of surgeries and, you know, and sort of keeping that engine turning, then I'm not very valuable to the hospital. And so I was, you know, my incentive was to do as many surgeries as possible. That's just a, the, the reality of it. That is how they pay the light bills. That is how they pay for the, the psychiatric department or the pediatric department, which isn't going to generate much money. So they lean on these other specialties, oncology, cardiology, do a lot of cardiac casts, pump out a bunch of chemotherapy. You know, as an orthopedic surgeon, do, you know, rotator cuff surgeries and, you know, meniscal, you know, debridements and, you know, ACL replacements and knee replacements, you know, as many as you can. So that's the system. Mm. Wow. A lot of really kind of crazy things that go on as a result of money. But one thing that you kind of talked about a little bit are all of the bad assumptions that go into the treatment of the patient. Can you talk about why those bad assumptions have a hard time being sort of overturned, especially stuff about lifestyle or, you know, a the efficacy of certain drugs versus, you know, trying something that would actually cure the patient and so on. Well, I mean, I think the lifestyle stuff as a physician, you know, I remember what made me go into orthopedic surgery and orthopedics is one of the most 
challenging fields to get into. It's extremely competitive because it's one of the best you know paid fields. You know when it comes to you know where you can make money in medicine these days, at least in the United States. You know, as a young medical student, I saw all these family practice, these general practitioners struggling and frustrated by their patients' inability to get better based on the treatments they were providing, whether it's compliance with drugs or lifestyle. And so, you know, I said, well, I don't really want to sit there and be frustrated all day. I'll just take a hammer and, you know, a hammer and a saw and a, and a scalpel, you know, and some screws and stuff like that. And I'll be able to heal with steel. I mean, this is one of the surgeons sort of models to heal with steel because, you know, you can sit there and fix them. And he doesn't care what the patient does. You know, their leg's broken. I can, you know, my ability to straighten out their leg and stick a metal rod down there has nothing to do with their, you know, their willingness to stop eating Twinkies or Doritos. Now, it may indirectly affect the outcome, but the primary outcome is, you know, I straighten your leg out and you can walk on it again. Now, what I found out later, of course, was most of what I was seeing was lifestyle-induced problems, you know, arthritis, Mm -hmm. tendonitis, you know, peripheral neuropathies, those types of things were all just basically metabolic consequences that I saw as an orthopedic surgeon of, of crappy lifestyle. And that's the real reality of pretty much any field, even if you're in a specialty. But, you know, but so if you, if you're, you know, if you're in a field like primary care and you're just day after day after day seeing failure of lifestyle, you sort of give up on it. You said you become beaten down and you say, well, lifestyle doesn't really matter. It's all about genetics. Here's a pill and, and you know, go on your way and we'll see if you get lucky and maybe you get some improvement in your symptoms. So I think it's, you know, I think it's just a, you know, it, the experience of the average physician of not having success. And it's kind of, you know, that's why so many of them are burnt out. So many of them are depressed. So many people don't like it, even though, you know, they work their whole life to be there and, you know, they're getting paid better than the average person and they enjoy some degree of respect within society. But at the same time, they're frustrated and unha- unhappy. And I think it's because of that. It's because, you know, you're basically not really given the tools that it takes to make a difference. Now, all the physicians I know that have kind of stepped away from that system and have kind of went into solo practice, maybe online practice, incorporated lifestyle, they're reinvigorated. They're like, wow, I'm really happy and I'm actually seeing difference. I have patients that are smiling in my office instead of, you know, crying, which is, you know, what you see a lot. (laughs) Yeah. This brings up a topic that I thought was absolutely fascinating. When I read this phrase, I was just like, wow, this has so much explanatory power for what happened in the last year, but nutritional epidemiology, that's not something that I had ever encountered as a phrase, but could you explain for our audience what that is? Yeah. So most of our nutrition knowledge, most of the sort of recommendations and dietary guidelines that we sort of operate under are based upon this. And I'm going to use the term science loosely because I don't think it is particularly scientific. It's something called nutritional epidemiology. And so what they do, it's just like, they take a large population of people, maybe 50,000 people, and they follow them for 20 years. At the beginning of the, or somewhere along that line, or at the beginning or at the end, whether it's you know, prospective or retrospective, they'll say, hey, what did you eat for the last year? And so they'll use something called a food frequency questionnaire. And so if I were to give you, Jimmy, if I were to say, hey, Jimmy, how many carrots, well, you may be able to know now because you're a carnival, but let's say if you're an email, <laughs> and you say, how many carrots did you eat in the last year in, in cups? And how many cups of ribs? Now, I mean, some of the measurements were just ridiculous. How many cups of ribs did you have last year? And <laughs> what did you drink? And how many blueberries did you eat on average? No one really knows this stuff. I mean, it's at best a guess. And what we do know, and I've, I've seen you know validation studies on these FFQs or these food frequency questionnaires done. And so one in particular I looked at last, you know, I think it was last year I looked at this. It was a German study and it was looking at, they took a group of people and they said, I want you to write down, measure and weigh everything you eat for 
four days. And so they did that. 30 days later, they said, okay, I want you to remember what you ate, you know, and what they remembered versus what they actually measured was so incredibly wildly disparate. There was no concordance. I mean, they saw that they classified into 25 different categories of food. Only nine of those 25 times did they even have greater than 50% concordance. So Mm. only nine out of 25 times did they even get it half right. They overestimated fruit and vegetable consumption by something like 83%. I mean, it was just ridiculous. The, The really funny part of this study was the author's conclusion was, well, that was a level of, of sort of, you know, the coefficient of accuracy, so to speak. That's good enough for epidemiology. <laughs> well, I'm just like, you got to be kidding me. He's like, it's good enough for government work. So you just, you know, that, there you go. And so that is what we're basing all this nutritional knowledge on. So we've got 80 to 90% of the nutritional knowledge that we have is based on that type of stuff. So it's not really even science. They're not scientific studies. They're just observations. And we know correlation doesn't equal causation. You know, they can observe a population and say that, hey, meat eaters have more heart disease. Well, what else do meat eaters do? Well, they don't really, you know, if if I tell you, if I say, Jimmy, eating meat is bad for you, you know, and, you know, so is smoking. So is not, you know, not not wearing your seat and, you know, staying up all night and getting fat. If you're going to likely ignore one of those, you're likely to ignore all of them. And so that's called the health user bias. And so we know that generally, you know, and we look at the way meat is consumed in the United States, particularly red meat, it's usually in conjunction with Coca-Cola, French fries, hamburger bun, hot apple pie. You know, this is a typical McDonald's meal. When we look at those same epidemiologic studies in places like Asia, where meat is considered not a bad food, it's considered a health food, and it's, it's considered valuable and people that have you know, funding, you know, access to, to wealth to actually acquire that. There's no evidence, there's no relationship or very little relationship between meat and any negative health outcome because usually it's not eaten in the context of, you know, Coca-Cola and all this stuff. It's more likely you might have it with a few vegetables and a little bit of rice or something like that, that may be a more traditional Asian style meal. So we're seeing these, these sort of all kinds of, you know, data that don't support that. In 2019, the largest study on red meat that's ever been done was accomplished by an organization called Nutrix. It resulted in six papers being published in the Ameri- in the Annals of Internal Medicine, and you know pissed off the vegan guys. They, they tried to sue the FD. They, they tried to petition the FTC to have the studies retracted. But basically, what it showed, and interestingly, one of the lead authors of that of that paper, his name's Gordon Guyatt. Gordon Guyatt, back in 1991, wrote a paper talking about this new concept of evidence based medicine you know, which we talk about all the time now, but he was a guy that actually pioneered this concept and has been, you know, studying this and looking at how do we examine the evidence for over 30 years. He's the world's leading expert on medical evidence, basically. And basically he was on that study and he said, red meat does not cause cancer, cardiovascular disease, or any other disease. And the only evidence that supports that is very weak, i.e. nutritional epidemiology. And so, this is a problem with, with how we get our nutrient because you don't hear it all the time. It's how you interpret the statistics. One week, eggs are bad for you. The next week, eggs are good for you. One week, you know, butter's good. The next week, it's bad. It's just garbage. And so this is a problem with nutrition science. And one of the problems I see is we have this belief that we know what foods are going to make us live longer or what foods we can eat <laughs> from getting cancer or What's going to prevent us from, you know, getting heart disease? That is the, you know, the the pinnacle of arrogance. We don't have the evidence. We never will have the evidence. We can't do the studies that would show that. They'll never have been done. 
No study has ever been tested in a way that would, would allow you to make those recommendations. So I keep saying, look, we got a lot of sick people. You can make those sick people better to where they're not sick. You can make diabetics so they don't have a need to take medications. You can have depressed people not be depressed. You can have obese people not be obese. You can have people with high blood pressure not have high blood pressure. You can have people with sore backs and achy knees no longer have those arthritic symptoms. That's the best you can really do as a physician. So if you focus on that, and that's what I do, you know, what I've seen, at least from my experience again, and I've got tens of thousands of people that have done this now, is a meat-based diet does those things. It makes people flat out healthier. And that's, that's what we should focus on. Mm. Well, I, but these studies have been used by like a lot of people for their own agenda. I think you call them in the book sort of like it's like politics. They're using it to further vegetarianism or something like that. Like what's going on there? Why are they promoting all of that? What's the motive? Well, money I mean, is profit. <laughs> what's the motive for anything? Uh, you know, these companies that can make you know, it goes, you know, Procter and Gamble, 1920, you know, gave the American Heart Association in the 1920s a million dollars, which is a lot of money back then to mm-hmm. promote, you know, their seed oil, their, you know, their Crisco product. And that's what, you know, took over the cooking in, you know, in the 1930s and 40s and the lard went, went by the way. It was all designed to make profit. And so they incorporate and enlist these medical organizations to help them do that. It's profit driven. I mean, these, these, you know, medical organizations are, I mean, they're, they're just like anybody else. They're subject to influence and power and whoever pays them the most. And so it's very sad to say, and we wish we'd, it wasn't the case, but that is. I mean, this, you know, this, this recent drive for, you know, synthetic meat, you know, these plant-based things, these meat analogs, whether it's, you know, made out of plants or eventually out of cell culture being pushed out of Silicon Valley, you know, is all about one thing. You know, it's giving these venture capitalists their 100x or their 1,000x on their return. I mean, this is what drives that. They don't care if it's healthy. They don't care if it's improving the environment, which, by the way, it's not. You know, but if you, you can portray that, you can sucker people into thinking it's it's a healthy alternative or it's going to save the planet. You know, why not? You know, it's a good sales point. You know, if we can make it taste the same. I mean, there's an article that just came out the other day talking about who cares if plant-based meats are junk food as long as you stop eating meat. I mean, that's clearly designed not to improve your health. It's designed to sell merchandise, to move capital. I mean, it's like the cereal industry. I mean, much of the cereal industry, you know, evolved out of the fact that they had all this industrial waste, this agricultural waste that they couldn't do anything with. Well, they figured out if they threw some iron fortification and some sugar on it, that people would eat it. And so (laughs) it turned into, you know, you know, a hundred billion dollar industry. And so this is what we're seeing, right? We're seeing these markets emerging and people just wanting to make money on it. Anytime, like I said, anytime I see plant-based, I think cheap and profitable. Mm. Well, so let's cross over into Bitcoin now. So you make the analogy that, or you make the point in the book about how people that eat meat eat much less processed food. Like if you're satiated on meat, you're, you're much less likely to eat processed food. That reminded me of this idea uh, that if you are like saving Bitcoin, what you end up doing is you just consume less. And I've seen this in a lot of people that do get into Bitcoin is that instead of buying stuff, they'd rather just save. And it's almost like this, you know, what you were talking about with respect to prevention versus treatment. Like right now in medicine, everything is, you know, towards treatment, especially of the symptoms and sort of rolling on that instead of prevention, which is lifestyle changes and things like that, which end up being uh, way more important for general overall health anyway. 
How do you think Bitcoin like changes the game in that regard? Do you think more people start thinking about prevention and saving and I guess having a low time preference? Well, I think, you know, I can use the analogy of, you know, if we think about something that has value, you know, and, and I think mm-hmm. we talk about it, so, well, who defines what value is? Well, value is whatever people say it is. You know, like I said, if people want to say Bitcoin is valuable because of its scarcity and its difficulty to produce, you know, then so be it. And, you know, I think the same thing with meat. I mean, meat is valuable, you know, from a nutritional standpoint. It's harder to produce, you know. I guess you could say it's relatively scarce and maybe it'll become even more scarce, unfortunately. But, you know, I think the thing with, you know, I think there is a mindset shift. and I think that's why there is this sort of correlation between people that hold Bitcoin and people that ultimately elect to to sort of treat their nutrition a certain way. I think that, yeah, I mean, you do become more efficient. You know, you you realize what's wasteful and what's not. And why, why am I wasting my energy and time sort of chasing the wrong things? And I think that's what you see with with that. And I, you know, like I said, I, you know, again, I'm new to the Bitcoin as far as being, you know, someone's holding that now. But I mean, I certainly get it now. And like I said, I'm kind of on that sort of belief that if you're going to get into it, just keep it. You know, you keep it as an asset and you can maybe borrow against it down the road or, you know, do something along those lines. And I think that, you know, I, you know, I think I'm, I'm investing in my health, you know, and if I want to be around long enough to be able to do that, you know, you want to make sure you have something as an asset can allow you to continue to invest in your health. And I think Bitcoin is going to be, you know, well, we'll see. I mean, again, you don't know until until Mm -hmm. it seems like things are pointing that direction. Mm. The other thing that I thought was interesting from your book that I can make sort of an analogy to fiat money is you were talking about how diets suck because managing your appetite generally is a very unpleasant activity, right? Like you're constantly thinking about food and you're hungry and that sucks. And that reminded me of like how most people have to treat their savings right now because they have to constantly manage their investments and make sure that it's going into the right places and that, you know, if it's a house or real estate or stock or whatever, they have to constantly make sure, okay, tax consequences, this, that, and you're researching different stocks that you might want to buy and researching different properties that you might want to buy and thinking about all of that. That also really sucks for most people. Whereas, you know, if you are doing something like the carnivore diet, you can just sort of set it and forget it. You don't have to manage your appetite. Similar thing with Bitcoin. If you just sort of buy Bitcoin, then you can kind of set it and forget it. Do you see like if one would be more, uh, you know, people in one camp could sort of see the similarity and be attracted to the other? Yeah, I mean, I you know, I guess... If I look at any animal on the planet and, and, and their approach to nutrition, none of them are typing information into an app. None of them are having a, a Fitbit to their watch. None of them are sort of calculating how much of this or that or balancing macros. They're just eating and they do fine. And I think you know, the analogy with Bitcoin is, you know, if I need, you know, a lawyer and a financial planner and, you know, 17 people to the bankers and all these stuff to manage that, you've got to say, why do we have all these layers you know, in between and are they, is it helping me or is it just getting those guys rich basically? And I think, you know, you can eliminate the need for a nutritionist and in many cases, even a physician, you know, if you just manage your nutrition, right. And then I think, you know, probably the same aspect is, you know, Bitcoin, you know, here, just, just buy and hold. And that's as simple mm-hmm. as it is. And I think sometimes in many cases, simplicity is the correct answer. You know, I think, you know, and, and, you know, just from a just from a mental health standpoint, not having to micromanage and think, 
about everything you do, whether it comes to investment portfolios or nutrition. I mean, it, it's much more freeing. And I think you're happier as a result of that. Mm. Yeah, a couple more things. There was this phrase that you put in your book, which I thought was absolutely wonderful. You already kind of mentioned it. But obese people are actually really malnourished, which is kind of like completely, you know, like challenges our assumptions about what obesity is. And it reminded me like, you know, like the people that are quote unquote, the richest are actually in quite a bit of debt in in our current system because they have access to it or whatever. But in a very similar way, they're they're you know profoundly unhappy oftentimes because they have to constantly manage this debt and even though they're making a lot of money they're you know also spending it in all sorts of unhealthy and consumptive ways it reminded me of this whole you know malnutrition in obesity that there's something much more fundamentally wrong than you know hey it's just you know food that i need to eat and they're just eating too much of it like do you see the same thing in sort of the financial system and you know how people sort of consume debt almost in the same way that people consume food well i mean i certainly can see that sort of analogy but you know i, I guess part of that is semantics because malnourishment doesn't mean undernourished mal means bad right i mean that's what mm. the word means so bad nourishment so when you say bad nourishment well then yeah it makes sense that obesity people are malnourished i mean they're getting enough calories they're just not getting nutrients and this is one of the problems out there and this is one of the things with this plant-based thing if we go to a fully plant-based diet in the united states and there's been there's been studies to show that we could produce probably 20 percent more calories the problem with that those calories are nutrient devoid and so it doesn't ha- help people. It just further exacerbates the problem of all these malnourished people. That is people that have too many calories, but not enough nutrients. And that's why, you know, on a carnivore diet, many people ultimately overall eat less food. They produce less waste, whether it's, you know, stuff in the garbage can, packaging material, you know, waste from their physiology, you know, what's in the toilet. So it's much more efficient it's much more effective. It results in a better result. And yeah, I mean, I can see people that, you know, they've got access to lots of money, as you pointed out, but they are profoundly unhappy because it occupies all their time trying to manage that. And, you know, like I said, if you can simplify that process and, you know, you can, you know, money will solve some money problems. It's not going to make you happy, you know, and that's, that's a concept that I think you know, many people, you know, particularly people who don't have money are kind of like thinking, if I just had an extra X amount of dollars, I'd be a happy person. Well, you may be, you may not have as many money troubles, but you may be just as unhappy or even more so because you've got more stress. Mm, Indeed. All right. Final thing. And this is what you ended your book with is that in many ways, carnivory or going carnivore is a path towards freedom. And, you know, obviously, this is something that is a big ethic of Bitcoin is that it's about self sovereignty. It's about, you know, not having somebody being able to sort of take your, you know, property away from you. And in a sense, you know, the overall tenor of the book that I got was that, you know, we're trapped in this sort of like conventional, you know, standard American diet, conventional medicine, sort of like, trap where, you know, they tell us what to do and tell us what's good for us instead of going towards, you know, what, you know, actually worked from a long time ago. You know, Bitcoin in many ways is kind of like that. It's like going on a gold standard except better. And it does sort of like take the control of money away from the state, much in the same way that, you know, going carnivore takes 
a lot of the you know experts out of the equation, right? The middlemen, the the people that have these agendas that are trying to influence you in one way or another for their own gain. In what way do you think this freedom will sort of change things going forward? You know, like you know, all the people that do do that, is it going to increase our appetite for freedom and you know start looking in other areas as well or do you think you know only the people that really are like kind of libertarian almost will care about it well i think you know if we go back far enough in time before you know before civilization so to speak before we you know we sort of specialized and we had you know hunter gatherer societies where they largely subsisted on hunting it was more egalitarian and so you weren't dependent on a central authority to sort of dictate your lives. And you could, I mean, maybe the analogy would be the central banks when it comes to Bitcoin. You know, we get away from that decentralized, the asset pool, and everybody has the freedom to do that without any sort of special preference to any one particular group. Any, you know, the poorest guy in Venezuela can pick up a couple of Bitcoin just like, you know, Elon Musk can. And so, I mean, you know, so it sort of makes it more, I guess, fair for everybody, I suppose. And it kind of takes you because, you know, you're at sort of the mercy of, you know, governments and, and central banking organizations currently as it stands right now. And the same thing I think is with nutrition. You know, I think that, you know, when you have, you know, access to these, uh, you know, health products, you don't need, you're not dependent upon all this other stuff. You know, I'll pick on Bill Gates a little bit here just because, you know, not only is he, he's not a fan of Bitcoin, but he's not a fan of real meat anymore. You know, he wants to make this synthetic meat. And so I think hopefully, you know, this community of meat eaters that see the value in real, you know, hard food, you know, and hard money as opposed to fiat food and fiat money will have a, a you know, a, a symbiotic relationship and sort of, you know, sort of help continue. I think what is direly important for our, our species, to be honest, I mean, I think, you know, it may be that Bitcoin saves the planet for you know people that want to eat, you know, eat in a way that's keeping them healthy. So hopefully they will be you know, some people in that community that are interested in supporting regenerative agriculture or, you know, continued access to meat or, you know, some of the stuff we're doing around, you know, like we're funding studies, you know, at MeatRx, which is a company I've had, you know, to try to secure the future for, for people that care about their health. Mm. Yeah. And regenerative ag- agriculture is certainly something we could probably talk another hour about, although I already did a show with Joe Salatin. But but yeah, I, this has been amazing. And we're glad to have you in our Bitcoin community. Where can people find you? Yeah. So I'm, I alluded to meetrx.com. So I'm there every day. I do an hour. In fact, right before this podcast, I did an hour meeting with the community. So we just have a community and I sit there and chat with them every day, seven days a week. Uh, I'm on Instagram, you know, social media wise. It's Sean S H A W N Baker B A K E R one nine six seven. Twitter S Baker M D, and then I would also I've got a YouTube channel listed under Sean Baker, so that's where I do most of that stuff. Hopefully, uh, next time I get out to Austin, are you in Austin, Jimmy? I am. I am. I, I went to college there, so I, I like a nice place. Next time I get out there, I'll have to maybe you, myself, and Michael and Goldstein. Mm-hmm. We can go to Franklin's or, or Terry Black's or something like that. Get some good old barbecue. Oh, yeah. So, so good. So good. Anyway, that's great. Hopefully we can do this again sometime. But thanks. I'd be happy to. I'll I, I tell you, I got to tell you, just I, I want to thank the folks in the Bitcoin community. I, I kind of announced that I was kind of stepping in the water there and I got a huge, just really nice response. I got my laser eyes from Diamond Hand to me. And so I'm you know, <laughs> really excited about the future of, of, of that. So it sounds fun. I'm, I'm, I'm really 
you know, spending a lot of time learning, you know, watching stuff, stuff with, I guess, as Michael Saylor has been pretty uh, vocal about it. It's been interesting to see the thought change, you know, from thing people, and I've seen the analogy in the meat-based thing, five years ago, people were making fun of me, thinking it's crazy. And now we got a lot of people that are really starting to look into this harder. And I think you're seeing the same thing in Bitcoin. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Bitcoin Fixes This. Sean Baker can be found at at sbakermd on Twitter and meetrx.com. Until next time, fiat delenda est.